Well, it is great to see you this morning. I hope you're doing well and uh, always a joy. It, I mean, I say that every week and, uh, and, and I mean it every week. It's such a joy to be able to worship the Lord with you and uh, we are glad you're here. If you're a guest here with us, uh, we're thrilled that you've joined us. If you're in this room in the amphitheater at home, uh, welcome. Uh, we're um, thrilled that you're here with us. Um, if, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 8, uh, we're in a series through John, uh, kind of verse by verse through the whole book and um, and um, uh, which is really, I think, important to do so because if we didn't do that, um, there'd be a lot of passages that we simply would never choose to teach. Um, but when you stand up and you say, we're going to walk through John, um, whatever's next is whatever's next. And, um, and John chapter 8 happens to be a pretty tense chapter, okay? There's a lot going on in John. I'm going to try to walk you through some of that, but uh, we're going to be in six verses today. But John's purpose in writing is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, John says, I've written that you might have life in his name. That he wants us to have a kind of life that's characterized by the words fullness. And full, uh, uh, just, just um, where life from our heart literally overflows in the way that we live our life. And so this is available to us. John wants you to have that. That's why he wrote this. And John was captured by the fact that Jesus kept telling other people that he was the great I am. Now that goes back all the way back in the Old Testament where God shows up to a man named Moses and he says, what's your name? And God says, well, you go back and you tell him that I am the great I am and that from this name, you'll always know me. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he starts saying these phrases that start with I am claiming that he is literally the son of God. He's the light of the world. He's the great shepherd. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we're memorizing several of these passages. And so for uh, September, our verse is John chapter 8, verse 12. So if you want to say that with me, okay? Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, apart from the fact that God's word tells us that in memorizing and hiding God's word in our heart, that there will literally be spiritual life and resource to fight sin. But another reason I think it's so important to have a verse like this memorized is this week, you're going to have opportunities to make life decisions, whether you like it or not. You're going to have to go right or left, whether you like it or not. You're going to have to make a decision. And sometimes our life comes to those moments and we don't know what to do. And what Jesus is saying here when he says, I'm the light of the world is you don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to rely on your own understanding. You can look to me and I promise you that I'll give you wisdom. He is literally the light. And that's the only hope really of our next moments. Even here, as we look at this passage is that Jesus who said that his spirit is our teacher and our tutor, that he's literally going to shed light upon our lives in the areas that are dark and need light in the areas where we don't understand and we need help, he's going to do that. But he tells us to ask him for help. So let's do that now, okay? Father in heaven, we look to you as we open your word, read these verses. We plead with you, God. Would you help us to see that, um, that apart from Jesus, we are in tremendous peril. I pray that you would liberate the people who are here today who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord. And God, I also pray that you would liberate those who do who are still wrapped up and wrap themselves back up with the very chains that you freed them from. So God, I pray by your mercy, would you pour out your spirit upon us? Would you speak through weakness and glorify Jesus? 
and grow us as a body, that we would live a life of love and that we would lead people to you. We need help, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I take it as an absolute certainty that everyone in this room and everyone in the world wants to be free. Not everyone in the world wants other people to be free, but everyone who looks into a mirror, um, what they see, that person wants to be free. We all long for it. Uh, years ago, uh, I was in a taxi cab in Jerusalem, okay? This isn't a joke, by the way, okay? And, um, and, uh, and the driver, he's sort of looking around. He says, no, over, the, over here, this is, this is where all the Jews live. And these are, over here is the Muslims. And over here, this is all, all of you people, that's what he said. And uh, because he knew that we follow Jesus and... and, and um, and so just in just chatting with him, it was really interesting that he finally got to the place where he said this. He said, you know, in all the tension and turmoil that you feel when you come here and where we live in, in this all the time, he says, if you take away the 1% of the crazies, the rest of us simply want to live in peace and freedom. Most people, they, they, they really do long for freedom. We don't like to be coerced. We want freedom from tyranny and constraint and coercion. We dream about freedom. We protest for freedom. We die for freedom. We give speeches, especially politicians. Everyone loves to talk about freedom. Freedom is so important to us. In fact, one of the most um, uh, uh, perhaps well-known speech on freedom was from Roosevelt back in 1941. He's speaking to Congress. And there he's laying out his vision, his dream for the freedoms that the entire world should have after the war was over. It was so compelling to some people that they made it a part of his monument up in D.C. And you can actually see the four freedoms that, that, that he dreamt about. Right? It was the freedom of speech. It was the freedom of worship. It was the freedom from want or poverty. Or, and then the freedom from fear. You know, the reason the world has not found these freedoms yet is because ultimately we are in need of a deeper freedom from something that destroys every good thing, and that is the tyranny of sin. And this is what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, verse 31, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, before we dive in, I want to show you three things that are true about Jesus. And if you apply them to your life, they're going to be tremendously pertinent to the way that you live this next week. Before I do all that, I want to confess to you personal sensitivity to the words and to the metaphors that I'm going to use today to describe the freedom that Jesus wants to give us from sin. You see, we live in a country that has a history 
where the words that I'm going to use to talk about spiritual freedom, things like slavery and slave master and chains and condemnation, metaphors that the Bible uses to speak to the greatest slavery we have, which is the slavery to sin. Well, these things, um, sort of depending on who you are and your heritage and maybe your skin color, you hear these things very different than someone maybe sitting right next to you. The fact is, these words, they're going to remind you, some of us for sure, of a time of our nation's history where one man enslaved another man. A time that still stirs up racial tension and hatred today. What I want you to know is this, in particular, if you're a visitor, is that we believe that every single person is created in the image of God, regardless of the pigmentation of your skin. And one day when Jesus restores all things and redeems that the people of God will gather at his throne and we're told there that people from every tribe and every race will be there. And at that point in time, there'll be no capacity to hate one another or have a misunderstanding about one another because the one thing that's going to bind all of us together is Jesus Christ is going to be standing before us. And by that time, he's going to have removed all of the hatred and all of the sin and all of the injustice from our hearts. And the only thing we'll have the capacity to do is to love him and to love the people who are near us. We're not there though. But Jesus tells us to pray towards that end, to seek that end, even here on the earth. And so providence is multiracial, not nearly as much as I want it to be and pray that it will become. But I thank God that there are people from different ethnicities, different races that call providence their home. And while I do not want to ignore or to be insensitive to the sinful reality of our history, nor the tension that it festers and brings into our culture, even today, I'm pleading for you. To listen to God's voice in his word that wants to tell us how to be free from something that is more vile than even the slavery on this earth. I realize that might be hard for you to hear, but listen, if we could become free from this, humanity has freedom to be, has, has the capacity to be free from the other terrible things that take place on the earth. And so I just want to say that because I, it, it's, uh, it's just a reality, okay? I look out and I see you and you're looking at me and we walk out of a culture into this room and we all feel these things and all of a sudden I'm going to start dropping these bombs like slavery and slave owner and beating and things like this. And you're like, gosh, this is, he didn't know what he's talking about, okay? So, um, so anyway, what does Jesus do? What kind of freedom does he bring into our our own hearts that allows us to literally love him and love one another perfectly. Three things I want to show you in these six verses. The first is that Jesus reveals the pathway to our spiritual freedom. He literally reveals the path. Now this is critically important because every single one of us, there are so many different paths that we can take. Proverbs 16 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You see, Jesus, because he's sovereign over all things, he not only knows the beginning of the path, but he knows where the path ends. And he knows that there is literally one path that doesn't end bad. And he's revealing exactly what that path is. So even in this room, there's multiple paths outside the doors. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, dead end, dead end. This is the path, dead end, dead end. Everyone's got to go through here. This is the path towards freedom. You all want to be free. You all dream about being free. And this is the way to do it. And this is exactly what we're going to see here. 
So Jesus is in Jerusalem, okay, where an enormous amount of people have traveled from all over the region in order to come to Jerusalem to celebrate something called the Feast of Booths, booths, tents, okay? And literally how they did this and why they did this was they were commemorating and celebrating God's provision to their forefathers when they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years, God told them to have an annual celebration that would last a week where they would come back to Jerusalem and they would camp in tents and they would celebrate God's provisions. Now, one thing that we just kind of skip over is a city is camping in a tent for a week. Think about that. Have you ever camped for a week? I've camped for a week one time. It was at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It was beautiful for three days, but a week has more than three days, right? And it was not beautiful after that. It was just a big hole is all it was to me. I was hot. I was done with this. This is a city that's full of people that need a nap and a shower, okay? And when you get to Romans chapter 8, Jesus is going to reserve his most direct comments for the very last day. Everyone's the most exhausted. They're almost to go home. I mean, they got a, like their neck is all bent. They've been sleeping on the ground in tents. This is, and all of a sudden he stands up and he starts to speak to them. And so the context here is you got a whole crowd of people surrounding him that are really tired. Jesus tells us that he has his own father pushing him in the back towards a cross And that cross is waiting six months from now where he's going to come back to Jerusalem and hang on it. And it's in this context that Jesus intentionally, intentionally exposes himself to escalating tension against him by saying things like, I'm the light of the world. I'm the son of God. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. This is to tired people, right? They're already irritable. And verse 30 tells us that some of them believed. So when we get to our text, verse 31, it starts, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed. Now, it's really important you understand this, right? Because in our context, sometimes when that happens, we're like, hey, fill out a card or raise your hand. I want to know who's believing. Jesus doesn't do that. There's no hand-raising opportunity. He doesn't shuttle them off into a side room so they can give them a mug and a little t-shirt that says, I'm a disciple. There's none of that going on. Jesus keeps them all there, and yet he wants to speak to them, knowing that some of them have started to believe upon him in the midst of all the people who even already want to kill him. And there in that context, he says to them these words. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Well, those are interesting words if you think about it, especially the words if and truly. See, in John chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6, We're exposed to people in those situations where people start believing that Jesus is a miracle worker. But when he starts laying out his claims and then his demands that you have to build your life upon those claims, they all backed away and said, no, 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 that's too hard. I don't want to follow that. And here, all of a sudden, what it looks like by using the words if and truly, it's a test of authenticity. If implies you may not. And truly implies a possibility of false. If you abide, you are truly my disciples. If you abide. Abide is where we get the word abode. It's a house. It's a place to live. 
So when we talk about abiding in his words, what we're talking about is literally building our house, our life upon the words of Christ, putting all our eggs in that basket of trusting him for salvation, saying you're the only one that I'm going to rely upon. It's, it's, it's where you live. It's where you continue. It's where you remain. It's where you go back to every single day because that's home. And this is what he's saying. If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. This same John, the same author, he writes a letter. It's at the end of the New Testament. It's first John chapter three says this. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another and whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Beautifully, it says that as we abide, we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. So like those Sherpa men in Nepal that lead people up to Mount Everest, Jesus is saying to people who are starting to believe in him in front of everyone, including people that want to already kill him. He says, you guys need to stay close. I promise you, I'll get you home. I'll get you to the peak. I'll set you free. You see, my word is not a voice in the crowd. My voice is the truth that can set people free. But I want you to notice that even though the Bible talks routinely about this word, this is a word that we don't necessarily pick up on a lot. And it's the word yoke. Yoke. You guys know what a yoke is? If you don't, let me show you a yoke. Okay. You two animals and they're wearing a yoke. Okay. Now that looks like slavery, doesn't it? Constraint, coercion. The fact is, is that's exactly the picture that following Jesus uses. He uses a word yoke. And what I want you to understand is this. Sometimes we think of Jesus offering freedom, meaning that, okay, now we're free to do anything we want and there's absolutely no consequence to anything. That's not what the New Testament teaches. See, listen to me, friends. The question is not if you're going to wear a yoke. The question is who's going to direct that yoke. Some of you don't like to hear this, but you're wearing a yoke right now. It may be your mirror. It may be the fear of man. It may be what people think about you. It may be pornography. It may be deceit. It may be money. I don't know what it is, but we're all wearing a yoke. Someone's calling the shots. Someone's pulling on us. And so Jesus comes and he says this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my what? Take my yoke upon you. Meaning take all those other yokes off. Put this yoke on. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You see, the freedom Jesus offers is not a life without a yoke. It's a life with a yoke that's driven by one who loves us more than anyone has ever loved us. And so Jesus, all the paths, he says, this is the one. And the one path he says that leads to spiritual freedom is if we build our life, if we abide in his word. And so the application for this first point is pretty simple. Let's examine ourselves to see if we are abiding in his word. You should ask yourself some questions right now. If there's literally only one path, you should ask the question, am I on that path? Are you believing in Jesus? Do you like to read his word? How do you respond to his word when you read it? Is there evidence of God inside of your heart? 
You see, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You see, the ultimate question you can ask about eternal security is, is Jesus in you or is he not? He says, but if he's in you, there's going to be some evidence. If the son of God who created everything by the spoken word, who rose from the dead, comes to live by his spirit in your life, would we not expect to see some difference? And so we should look, okay, is there evidence of Jesus inside of me that I'm abiding in him? When I sin and God lives, God, a holy God is living inside of me. When I'm pouring sin down upon his head by his spirit, does he grieve and cause me to grieve? Is there any conviction whatsoever when I sin? There needs to be. The fact that it is, is proof that he's there. Has God changed some of the want-tos of your life? Where you read something that says, you know, I've never wanted to do that before, but you know, that's really appealing. I think I want to be a humble man. See, I simply want to ask you this question. Are you building your life upon his word? Now, one of the things which is really, really challenging in particular for us as people that read this, as we get very confused and we think, okay, so what this is saying is it's, we're saved by grace and endurance. Right? Because he says, if, if we abide, then we're truly. So we'll, so we'll see if we really are later on. And so we start stacking things upon grace, right? It's, well, so, it's, so it's grace and endurance. Grace and good works. Grace and a changed life. Grace and What you need to know is the Bible says that we are saved by grace alone. Not grace and anything else, just grace. Add any requirement to grace and it's no longer grace because grace is unmerited favor. Grace is saying God comes to us and he says, I'm going to do you good even though you don't bring anything to this equation. I'm bringing everything to you. But listen. A heart that is touched by grace is born again, we're told in John chapter 3, with new dispositions to love his word and to keep his word. And so once we have a new central operating system in our heart, once new sap is running up through the tree, would we not expect for the fruit to look different if the Son of God is living inside of our heart as opposed to not? So our endurance is not conditional for salvation. It's proof that you are saved. It's what happens to the life that has Jesus inside of them. But we need to be very, very careful not to stack things up with grace. To say, well, it's grace and. No, it's grace. So the question. Are you building your life upon his word? Well, the mercy of God not only shows us this path, but it's amazing. That this is true. This is the one and only path to freedom. You have to ask the question, well, why is everyone not traveling it? 
And so in his mercy, this is the second thing we learn about Jesus, is that Jesus exposes the obstacles to our spiritual freedom. He's going to tell us right here why people don't travel this path. And if, friends, if you're not traveling this path, this is going to apply directly to where you're at right now. You see, isn't it tragic that by the time we get to verse 45 in this passage, just 15 verses later, right? In verse 30, it says, and many started to believe. By the time we get to verse 45, Jesus says to them, you all don't believe. Well, what happened? What, What occurred between those 15 verses? What's interesting is they're just conversing. But this is really, really important because the Bible teaches us that whatever's in the heart is going to spill out of our mouth. And so by looking at what some of these people are saying, it's going to give us a window into their heart to understand that they were never really believing and abiding in Jesus to begin with. So when he says, you're not believing in me, we shouldn't be surprised. So what do they say? Well, after he says the truth is going to set you free, they say, what are you talking about? We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. You see what they're saying? They're not abiding in Jesus. They're abiding in being Jewish. And if you think about their history and where they're at currently, right? In spite of the fact that they've been slaves in Egypt, in Babylon, in Assyria, in Greece, one more somewhere else and Rome, right? They're, they're currently slaves to Rome. They're under rules, Rome's domain right now. And they look around and says, you know what? We've never been a slave to anyone. And this is one of the first obstacles to all of us is none of us believe that we're a slave to sin. We justify on the basis of our morality or our ethnicity or whatever it is that we want to use our good works, whatever it is, to say, are you kidding me? I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. And so Jesus, what he says is amazing. He says, truly, truly. Just sort of like saying, this is really important. This is really important. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, what he's saying is, not only are you guys blind to your slavery, but you're also blind to the peril that lies before you because you are slaves to sin. So we got to ask the question, well, what peril are they in? And what peril are we in if we are still a slave to sin? Well, sin produces three things. I'm going to talk about the first two right now, okay? First of all, the thing it does is it produces a compulsion in our heart to sin. And then when we give in, it produces a condemnation over our head. So I want you to imagine, all right, there's a guy, and he's got a leash, and on the other side of the leash is a little dog, a little innocent little puppy, okay? And so he comes over and he goes, come here, come here. And the dog walks over, all innocent. When he gets close enough, all of a sudden the owner just beats the dog. So the dog wises up the next day, right? So the owner, come here. Come here. You're just sitting there. Like, no, I, I've done this before. Oh, come here. All right. You don't want to come? Well, I still got a leash in my hand. So I'll just start pulling you. Eventually, halfway through, the dog kind of resigns. Well, okay, I guess I should. Why not? 
And he comes over and he's looking up and gets beat again. And this is the reality of sin, friends. Sin tantalizes us to say, come. And then when we get there, it terrorizes us with guilt. It says, come on over here. Come on, come on. It yanks on us and pulls on us and we get close enough and then it beats us up. Sin is a terrible slave master. And what's amazing is it gets worse from that because Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says that you were slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So not only does sin have a compulsory aspect over us where it's pleading and tantalizing us and a condemning aspect where then it speaks guilt to us, but then it leads us to the edge and throws us over the top and it says, all right, now you get to die. And this is the peril that Jesus says that they're in, everyone who's not in Christ. And so the application is, let's recognize our peril and resist the urge to justify ourselves. If you know Christ, you can even do this with the sin that you're allowing in your life. See, Jesus can free you from the sin. and You can take those same chains that have been unlocked and wrap them back around your leg because you find some pleasure in them for a time. You need to realize there is peril in doing that. And if you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, there is peril before you. And this is what sin is going to do for the rest of your life until it finally wins and you go to the grave. It's so serious what Jesus is talking about here. And yet, isn't it true that there's a natural offense that rises up in all of our hearts when someone like myself says that we're a slave to anything or anyone? We naturally rise up and say, I'm no slave. I can quit lying anytime I want to. I can quit looking at pornography anytime I want to. I can quit hoarding anytime I want to. We all justify. And so what Jesus is saying is stop evading my warnings by justifying your position by either your morality or your effort or your ethnicity or whatever it might be. He's saying, I urge you to see the danger that you're in and I urge you to feel the chains. The most amazing thing about Jesus is not only in his mercy does he show us the path towards freedom and the obstacles that are in our way of why we don't walk that, but he also pays the price for our spiritual freedom. He allows us have no right to be able to walk this path. And he says, I'm going to pay every penalty that you have and every price that you have so that you can. Verse 35 and 36 is very descriptive. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, many households had slaves as well as sons. And at the end of the day, even though the slaves have spent all their day working in the house, fixing the house, making meals in the house, cooking, cleaning inside the house, they had to leave the house and go to the slave corner so that the sons and daughters could enjoy the house. And Jesus, it's amazing to me. Jesus uses this horrible injustice that has been seen through history in different cultures and times to point to our hopelessness as a slave to sin. You see, the reality of slavery at this point in time, I told you this two weeks ago, was that you became a slave, if you were a slave, by one of two ways. 
One is your country was defeated in war and you had no option. You were dragged over and now all of a sudden you became slaves to a country that just defeated you. And the other is if you ran out of money, you could sell yourself in order to pay that debt off. It's worse than having a job. It was you literally gave someone the right to not put you in prison by allowing them to be your slave masters so that you could pay off that debt. So when it comes to sin being our slave master, you have to understand that that debt is simply too much for you ever to be able to pay. And so Jesus did what we can't do. And that he came from heaven to earth. And the very fact that John 8 even exists, Jesus having this conversation is because he came. This isn't happening from heaven to earth. This is happening earth to earth. Jesus is here with us. He's having these conversations with them exposing himself to greater tension and hostility in order to rescue them so that he's going to go to a cross after living a righteous life to pay for your debt and my debt that we couldn't pay on our own. And for those who do believe, what he does is he removes the compulsion of sin by giving us a new nature and he removes sin's condemnation by giving us his righteousness. This is how Romans chapter 8 says it. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. So this is what that means. He says the, the law became unable to get something done. And that was to get us to freedom. The law meaning that our ability to obey it. He says what the law couldn't do, God sent his son to do. And God's son came to the earth. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. And everyone who believes upon him, he not only takes away our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. To the extent it says that all the righteous requirements of the entire law have been fulfilled in us. That means that when God looks upon people who have believed in his son and have built their life upon Jesus Christ, that God looks and it says that he looks at it as if we fulfilled every single law perfectly, as if we've never sinned. God says, you're innocent. And because of that, he starts and he says, now there is no condemnation. Sin can't condemn you any longer. It can't control you any longer. The word now I taught last year where he says there is now no condemnation. And there's two directions of the word now. There's the finally now and there's the already now. So let me talk about both of these. You're like, what are you talking about? Let's just say that you have a little kid and it's their birthday five days from now. But in the mail today comes a present. The kid wants to open it up because it's from grandpa. And you say, no, it's not time yet. Not now. Every day throughout the whole week, they're waiting. Dad, now? Can I open it now? And you're a stickler. And it's like, no, you don't want to open any gifts until your birthday, right? Well, finally on the birthday, it comes now? Now. Finally now. So you and I, we've been looking for freedom. We've been looking for freedom from sin all our life. And because of what Jesus did, we trust him, he says, Finally, now, there's no condemnation for you. Stop running. Stop working. There's no condemnation. But there's also, beautifully, and 
already now. This is like when somebody has a lot of money and they want to give it to their kids as an inheritance, but instead of waiting until they die, they want to give it to them so they can watch them enjoy it. So they have a family meeting and there's envelopes and they pass it out to each of the kids and the kids open it up and there's a check at the bottom of their full inheritance and they, uh, already? Already now? You want me to go ahead and already enjoy this? And what God could do is he could reserve all the blessings and leave us in a state of uncertainty while we walk this earth, even though he knows that we're going to be forgiven when we get to heaven. But he loves us too much. He wants us to know that we're already forgiven. There's already no condemnation. We're already blessed. And so he tells us while we're here on this earth, even when we're battling sin still, he says, already there's no condemnation for you. Isn't that amazing? But it goes further because what it says is this. It says, who the son sets free will be free indeed. In other words, what Jesus does here is this. He not only frees us, he makes us a son or a daughter so that we can stay in the house. We don't have to leave the house to go to the slave quarters anymore because our house is now the house. And this is what he says to us. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir with God. What's he saying there? He's saying, you don't need to leave the house anymore. Pull up a chair, enjoy dinner. You've been adopted. And so what do we do with this? He's revealed the way. He's exposed the obstacles. He's paid the price. And two things are left. Number one is let's trust Jesus and be freed from sin's power. Guys, he doesn't tell us all this to give us information. He tells all this to give us an invitation. He wants you to come to him today, to believe upon him today, to trust him today, to confess your sins to him today. And if you've not done that today, you can do that. We urge you to trust him today. And for those of us who have, the second application is let's fight sin like a free man. You say, what does that mean? Well, our freedom from sin, it doesn't remove us from the possibility of continued temptation until we get to heaven. But our freedom now allows us to fight where at one time we couldn't fight. At one time, our master said, come, and we had to come. But now that old master... Even though he's been broken down, he can still yell and he can still pull. But now as sons and daughters, we can resist. We can repent. We can gather people around us to hold us accountable. We can find superior pleasure. We can eliminate triggers in our life towards those temptations. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul says, you know what? Now that I'm a free man, I'm still swinging. I'm still punching. And I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not just punching the air. No, when I punch, I connect. And who I connect with is my own sinfulness. I'm not going to allow myself to say, well, I can't help it. No, no, no. I'm going out fighting. And even when we do sin, that old master starts pouring Guilt upon her head. Even then, it's a time to fight. Even then, it's a time to say, it's true, I've fallen. I hate what I've done. But that sin is not all that is true about me. For God has paid my debt and adopted me in his family. It is true, O enemy, that I have sinned. But that is where your voice of accusation stops and where my theology begins. 
For my God, whose son's life makes me righteous, will pick me up and push me forward. Providence, we have so many reasons, every reason to rejoice today because we have been set free by Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for the mercy that you've poured out to us to allow us to understand that there really is a path towards spiritual freedom that can transform our culture, our entire world. We thank you that you've revealed the obstacles. Most importantly, we thank you for your mercy in coming to rescue us and paying that price. So it really is a joy that as we have an offering and even as we sing a song, God, that that we would do these things with full hearts, amazed at your mercy, grateful for your mercy. It's incredible. We love you. We thank you for it. God, would you use this time, Lord, to speak to our hearts things that we need to either repent of or obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.